Evening, everybody. So, I think I want to start by telling you that God believes everything you're saying tonight. How's that sound? So when KB started the service, she said some things we sing by faith, and that's true, that if we're not quite there, we can declare it. But as we were in this time of worship, I actually felt God saying that he believes everything you're singing. Near KB. Okay. So things like we will praise you with our lives and proclaim our love for you, or all, all my days are. Do you remember singing that? Okay. Or uh, you are mine and I am yours. Do you remember singing that part? So what's wonderful about worship and music and things is it can take us and move our hearts to a place where we can respond to God more directly. And sometimes God gets us to sing things that perhaps we don't always think about so well. But I think, I just want you to know, God heard you singing tonight. And so I know some of you are going, well, I never sang that. It's okay. God believes everything that you sang tonight. As a believer, I probably not often enough try to reflect a little bit on my spirituality. You know, how am I doing with Jesus? And one of the things I've found as I've tried to evaluate or consider my walk with Jesus is the place I start from, the perspective I start from when I think about my life or my spirituality and, and how I'm doing in Jesus, it's, it's quite important where I start from. Now, we can start from different places, but just in terms of broad categories, if you start that your default is, you know, I'm a sinner and I'm, you know, I'm just rotten and I'm born bad, okay, um, you know, my propensity is to do evil and thank you that God saved me and, you know, my whole life is just grateful because His grace is real and it has changed my life. But if I start from this perspective that I'm in the dust and a sinner is saved by grace, and is that true? Are we sinners saved by grace? It's true. But it's a place we can start from. What I find then is if I evaluate my spirituality, my life, and if I look at it and I I tend to have a bit more of a negative perspective on myself and how well I'm doing because I, I kind of start counting my wrongs. You know, how did I do today and where did I miss it today and what went wrong today and uh, what un- unkind words did I say and things like that. Another perspective to start from, just to keep with the S's, is this perspective of being a saint. That God has made something new in me when I got born again, when I gave my life to Christ, when I devoted myself to living my life for him. God did something in me which radically changed who I am. And I actually start from this place of being a child of God. And when I look at my life, instead of looking at from the dust up and from all the things I possibly do wrong and all the things I'm predisposed to doing that aren't pleasing to God, I start from this place that actually I'm a father pleaser. Actually, my life is orientated towards God and not away from God. Because you see, that's one of the radical differences in the New Testament. Apostle Paul, who wrote most of what we have recorded for us in the New Testament, has this very interesting perspective on humanity. Uh, Often in today's political climate, they, they use something called identity politics, where they try and create and highlight the differences between groups and Sometimes they base it on race. Sometimes in some countries they base it on economics. Different ways of identity politics that they get applied and things like this. And what they really try to do is highlight the differences. But the Apostle Paul in the New Testament 
has this radical idea that all of humanity is actually just divided into two groups. Now, in his day, uh, the, there were Jewish people, there were non-Jewish people. Now, the non-Jewish people, the New Testament always just speaks of as Gentiles. But Gentiles could have come from any nation, any culture in the world. But Paul, although he takes note of the Jews and the Gentiles in terms of their differing religious backgrounds and perspectives and cultures that they came out of, that's not the primary way that he identifies or divides humanity. He divides humanity simply into two groups. How simple is this? Believers and unbelievers. And it's in this space that when he writes, particularly the New Testament letters, he writes to believers, but very mindful that they've often grown up and live amongst unbelievers. And this radical idea that he has is that a believer's life is supposed to make a difference. When we say all my days are yours, it means that every day your life has to look different and be different. Now, in reality, as we practice our Christian faith, this can be expressed differently. I find it more helpful as I evaluate my life to start from the place of saved by grace, but I am a child of God. My life is oriented towards God, and so how am I doing? What about you? How do you define yourself as a believer or perhaps as an unbeliever? Perhaps you haven't come to this place where you've committed your life to Christ and you've decided to follow him. Well, thank you for coming tonight. You're in the right place, okay, because it's an important journey. When you're ready to take that step, everything inside you will change. But for us as believers, how do we position ourselves? How, what mindset do we have of ourselves? How do we identify? How do we associate where we belong? Now, many, for most in this room, because there is a bit of an age range in here, for most in this room, you would quite easily find your identity being who you are being defined by your cause, what you're part of. Uh, the hot one at the moment is the land debate. and Maybe you define your life by your position on that debate. Or maybe you define your life on some other social justice cause or something else that's important or significant to you. And how you define your life will then determine how you behave, how you live out each day. And I think probably one of the things I want to say tonight is God really cares about how you live every single day. He really cares deeply how you live. He doesn't want, perhaps, that you have a perfect day, but he does want each day to be oriented, oriented sorry, towards him, to be oriented towards his will and his plan. And so how we look at ourselves becomes important. Now, this term, as you may know, we're busy with a series which is probably going to be a focus for us in Hatfield for longer than a term, and we're calling it the Disciples' Quest, this journey we go on a disciple is simply one who follows Jesus, and I'd like to add the word intentionally. Intentionally with your life, you want to learn the teachings of Jesus, you want to live the teachings of Jesus. And this is a quest, it's a journey with a purpose. Now, as we look at this theme, we've been spending time, particularly this term, and we'll do other things, I think, as the year goes, in the book of Ephesians. How many of you have been here? How many of you are starting to love Ephesians? How many of you are tired of Ephesians? Okay, well... Three more Sundays to go, including tonight. But as we look at the book of Ephesians, we see two very clear parts of this book. First three chapters, Ephesians 1 to 3, are a lot about what we believe, or in some contexts, what God has done for us. And the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, 
are very much about how we behave. Now, last week we started in, and Pastor Stuart Bell from the UK was here, and we started in to the first half of chapter 4, where basically it talks about this idea that Jesus gave gifts, the main idea, there's many things there, but that Jesus gave gifts to the church in terms of what we often call the fivefold ministry, the prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, and one more. Um, apostle, yeah, <laughs> sure, I'm going to be in trouble if I forget the apostles. Okay, and he gave these gifts for the church, but the point is not so much what are you and what's your gift and where did God position you. The point is the purpose of these gifts. Why did Jesus give these gifts to the church? And as you might have remembered from the text, it was to bring us all to maturity. And so if you want, you can say, God wants me to grow up. That's the purpose of church. It's a purpose actually of being gathered together like this. The Bible says when we gather together, the purpose is that we get built up. King James' word for that is edified, but built up is what it means, okay? When we gather together so we get built up, why must I get built up? So that I can grow up, so that I can mature. And Ephesians carries us, and, and we're in the spot, we can look at the second half of chapter 4 tonight, and it kind of plays into parts of chapter 5 as well, but my mandate is to preach on chapter 4, otherwise I'll be in trouble with whoever preaches next week, I suppose. Um, but what is very important as we hit the second half of the book of Ephesians, because at the beginning of chapter 4, there's this pivot verse where up until there, the focus has largely been on what God has done and what we should believe about God. And in chapter 4, verse 1, in the New Living Translation, it says, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, it's always phenomenal to remember Paul was writing this letter while he was under house arrest or in, in prison of some form. As a prisoner of the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, the things you've been called for. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is about living this worthy life. To beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And for each of us in this room, that is the truth of your life. You have been called by God. Simply put, God has a plan for your life. Perhaps that plan is quite general. Do you want to know what God's general plan is for your life? Pastor Louis spoke a lot about it this morning. It's that you love him and you obey him. That's not difficult. Well, <laughs> Simple to know, take some time to live out. But as we now enter the second part of Ephesians 4, it's very important to remember that how you behave is always in response to what God has done. As soon as you put behave before believe, your danger in life is that you tend towards legalism, that you start thinking that Christianity is about how you must act. Now let me be clear, in the New Testament, there's a very clear expectation of how you should behave as a believer. There's a very clear expectation about how God wants you to live. But that is always followed by responding to what God has initiated. We always respond to what God has done first. That first. That's why we live by faith. Faith is responding to what God has done. It's believing that God will do what he said he would do. God initiates and we respond. And so as we go into chapters 4, 5, and 6, please remember that this is not a new form of legalism. This is not the list some of the action-orientated people in the room have been waiting for. Just tell me what to do. Okay, this is the easier tell you what to do. It's very clear. It tells you what to do. But you have to see the behave in the context of what you're supposed to believe. You re I'm responding to what God has done. I'm responding to what God has initiated in my life. And so we say that the disciples' beliefs must be matched by the disciples' actions. So 
My text for tonight is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. I'm going to use the NIV translation. It's generally okay for our purposes tonight. Ephesians 4, 24 says, Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so the title on my message, of my message tonight is, Put on your real self. If you are a believer, this is who God has made you to be. This is the real you, created in God to be holy and righteous, created in God to be like God. Sometimes we talk about being like Jesus or being Christ-like. That is who you really are. And so the encouragement that comes through in Ephesians 4, although it talks about what you should put off and the things you should stop doing and what things you should put on and things you should start doing, the call is be who God has really made you to be. Be everything God has provided for you, positioned you for in chapters 1, 2, and 3, which means in chapter 1, you're blessed. Chapter 2, you're reconciled in community. You're part of a holy community. Chapter 3, to grow in your understanding of God's love for you. All those things are part of who you really are. Because you see, when you get born again, is the language you use, what we simply mean is, that when you give your life to Christ, he does something new in you so that he can start doing something new through you. And he makes you a new person inside by the power of his spirit. Now, that's quite an exclusive club to be in. Christianity, one of the interesting things about Christianity is that it's quite divisive. Did you know that? All are welcome, but you have to come in one way. There's only one way in. Not everybody will end up in heaven one day. That's not what Christianity teaches. It's very exclusive. It's only those who put their faith in Christ who will end up in heaven, who will live eternity with God. You say that's difficult. Well, who can put their faith in Christ? God wants all men to be saved. Jesus has made a way for all to be saved. But it's only those who actually do that, who put their faith in Christ that come to this place. So if you are a believer, you're not in a proud way, but you're in quite a select group. How does that feel? You're special. Is that okay? If you're not a believer, you're also special. Just you could become more special. Okay. Let's look at Ephesians 4. We want to read from verse 17 onwards now. Uh, we'll touch back on our text, our main text verse a little bit later about putting this, put on your new self. Because what Paul does in this passage, he creates quite a clear contrast between your old self and your new self. And essentially what he's saying is you have to put off your old self, and then he describes what that is, and you put on your new self. One of the other interesting things in the New Testament, I find as I study it more and more, is that Paul's quite concrete. What do I mean by that? Concrete, not like hard. Concrete as in clear. There's many abstract concepts in the New Testament, like love one another, or walk in the Spirit, or be led by the Spirit. But what I find as I study those passages where those verses and those principles are laid out for us, is Paul or whoever else the author is, is quite clear about what does that actually mean. What does it look like when you love each other? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, when you want to walk in love, you must be patient, and you must be kind, and you must be joyful. You must be not reckoning wrongs. You must keep a record of wrongs. It defines it for us. When it says, when you walk in the Spirit, you don't engage in old language, the works of the flesh. Okay? Things like sexual immorality, gluttony, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. 
But when you walk in the Spirit, you display the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Guess which verse I memorized. Okay. You've got to focus on the positive people. Okay. And so too, when, and, and by the way, next week, whoever, I don't know who's preaching next week in Ephesians 5, but there's some concepts, just let me give you a few tips, Kieran. Paul's going to talk here about the role of the Spirit in chapter 4 and 5, and he quite clearly defines what does it look like when you're filled with the Spirit? What does it look like when you honor the Holy Spirit? What does it look like when you grieve the Holy Spirit? It's quite clear for us in this passage. And so even here when he starts talking about putting things off and putting things on, he gives for us very clear examples of what this looks like. Is that okay? So remember, we're not talking about a new legalism here. We're talking about how do we position our lives to respond to everything that God does. What does it look like when all my days are yours? What does it look like when I am yours? What does it look like when I want to live and be a disciple for Jesus every day? So Ephesians 4.17, we're going to just go through paragraph by paragraph. Paul writes and he says, so I tell you this. In fact, he says, I insist on it. It's quite strong language in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And by here, he really means unbelievers. Okay, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So they don't think very clearly, according to Paul. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, there's quite a lot there, and, and, and probably if you wanted to preach a sermon on Romans 1, which really unpacks these ideas a whole lot, um, we could devote some time to that. But I just want to highlight something here. Right in the beginning, Paul says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. There's an expectation from God and an invitation and a challenge that you don't live like everybody, all the unbelievers around you. Paul has this in his mind, amazingly, that as a believer, your life should look different from the unbelievers around you. Is that fair? If you've made this core decision in your life that you want to follow Christ, there should be something that distinguishes you from the unbelievers. Your life should have some level of difference. Now, it doesn't mean when you walk in the room, you know, there's a glow about you, although, you know, if you're really anointed, maybe. But it means that as someone examines the course of your life, the choices you make, how you interact with others, how you respond in difficult situations, a Christian should look different from a non-Christian. Okay? Why? Because believers, unbelievers, their thinking is futile. It says their hearts are hardened. Literally, the, 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 in the original language, the understanding with that word is that their lives are calloused. You know calluses that some people get? It's like the thickening of the skin. I, I never get them, so I don't know what they are. I read about them. But like guitar players, if you look at Udo's hand, you'll have calluses on his fingers. It means he's lost sensitivity in the tips of his fingers. It's true. Okay, because he's always pressing metal strings. And you know, that's, have you ever learned to play guitar? Try to learn? Okay, I always give up because it's just it's too sore. I'm a sissy. Okay. But an unbeliever's life is a calloused life. It's thick-skinned. They don't feel badly about what they do. And that's natural to them. We shouldn't expect, by the way, unbelievers to feel bad about sin because they're doing what is natural to them. It's always interesting. Okay. It says they give themselves over to sensuality. They, to find meaning, they have to try and find stimulation 
in all kinds of illegitimate ways because their lives are ultimately empty. And so they'll give themselves over to impurity and they're full of greed, simply meaning here that they're never satisfied. Because that's the problem with sin. You always need more. You always want more to just try and feel purpose, meaning, comfort, whatever it is. And it's just empty and it doesn't satisfy. But Paul begins here in Ephesians 4.17 and he says, as a believer, you shouldn't live like that. Your life should look qualitatively different from an unbeliever's life. Is that okay? How many of you knew that God expected you to be different? How many of you know that it's okay to be different? Is that okay? Because sometimes on university campuses or in schools, the pressure is always workplaces, families. The pressure is to conform. As soon as you start living differently, that people start watching you, start taking notice of you, perhaps start even persecuting you. But the fundamental thing that Paul also says about the unbeliever is that their lives are separated from God. And that's a tragedy, to live a life that is separated from God. Let's move on in Ephesians, pick up at verse 20. Paul's continuing with this contrast about putting on and putting off, and we'll get to it now. Paul says, this way of life of the Gentiles, this way of life of the unbelievers, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. Interesting that you can learn the Christian life. And if you come from a pagan background, like many of the Gentiles in Paul's time did, many of the unbelievers didn't even know that it was wrong to go sleep with prostitutes. They just had no reference point for that because that's what everybody else did. And then they come to Jesus, they get saved, and suddenly they've got to learn the teachings of Jesus. They've got to learn the truth of life. It's not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him, so you also need to be taught sometimes what it means to follow Jesus. You were taught in him accordance, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. We don't have time tonight to talk about the nature of truth, but just to say uh, there is only truth found in Jesus. If you want to know the truth about how to live, you only find that, really find it in Christ. Verse 22, Paul writes, and he says, You were taught with regard to the former way of life when you were a Gentile, when you were an unbeliever, to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires. So your old life is actually a corrupted life. Now, if you bring that into computer terminology, it's like a corrupted disk. It's just good for nothing. Okay. Your old life is good for nothing. And you need to be made new in the attitude of your minds. New, you need to renew the way you think about life because you're being taught and you're busy learning. And you need to put on the new self, our text verse, created in God to be, sorry, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so it's very important that we understand that God made us to be righteous, which in simple terms, without being overly complex, means God's made you to do the right thing. God's made you to live in the right way, which means that it's possible. Being a Christ, to live the Christian life or being a Christian is not God, something God is asking us to do that is impossible. He's made it possible for us by giving us a new life and his spirit that lives in us. Verse 25 carries on, and now Paul gets into some concrete examples. What does it mean to put on this new life? What does it look like? And there's three main categories that he'll keep coming back to in chapter 4. And I believe in chapter 5, some of these pick up and carry on. But Paul starts in verse 25 and he says, Therefore, you must put off falsehood. In other words, stop lying. Is that simple enough? Stop deceiving and lying. Put off falsehood 
and speak truthfully to your neighbor. And it seems in this context, remember he's writing this to Christians, eh? It's going to get a little shocking just now, but he's writing this to Christians. But he's saying that even within the church, even within the faith, excuse me, faith community, you should be speaking truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Sorry, I've got a bit of flu, so I might just need to drink some. Sorry about that. So within the faith community, but also in broader life, part of the truth of living your life in Christ is that you live an honest life, a truthful life. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor if we are all members of one body. See, it's important if I really believe that all of us in this room are part, if we believers, are part of the body of Christ. It means it's important that I tell you the truth. Why? Because I want you to mature. I want you to grow up. I want you to come to a unity of faith that he spoke about in the first half of chapter 4. That's why sometimes... Sometimes as believers, we kind of go, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. And there's, sometimes it's wise. Sometimes it's not good. We'll see now. There's a, a, word, a time to speak a word to somebody. There's a time to do it according to their need, it says later in the text. But it, I should not shy away from it. I should not withdraw from, if I need to speak to a brother or a sister and say to them, listen, I see something here which is not helpful. It's not helping you and it's not helping others. Why? Because I value the body of Christ. Verse 26 in the NIV says, In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. How many of you went on a marriage course or you've heard teaching on marriage? If you're not married, just take good notes. And they've told you, don't go to sleep until you sort out anyone. Has you ever heard that? Okay. So early on in my marriage, I figured out at 1 o'clock in the morning, you're solving nothing. You know, my wife and I, on occasion, very really, um, disagree. We are like opposites for some reason. They tell me opposites attract. I don't know. Um, but, you know, when you get to 11, 12 o'clock at night and you don't want to let the sun go down on your anger, first of all, the sun's gone down already, okay? I'll explain what the verse means now. But it is good advice to not go to bed with a grudge in your heart. But sometimes just for free marriage advice at 1 o'clock in the morning, probably going to make it worse, not better. Especially if you're a man, because you're going to say something you should just never, ever have said. Can the marriage pe- married people, some of them are nodding at me. Some of them are going, how could you? I've always, let this, I've always resolved my issues before we went to bed, all that stuff. A better translation, so it's a good principle, that in your anger you do not sin. Don't let your anger allow you to sin. What the original language more accurately says is, be angry, but do not sin. Now, obviously there... It's talking about a specific kind of anger. It's what we would call righteous anger. Anger that things are not as they should be. Anger that there's sin damaging people. Do you know you're supposed to become angry that there's people living in poverty in our country? Because sometimes we think Christians are never allowed to be angry. You are allowed to be angry as long as it's righteous anger. How do you know if it's righteous anger or not? Very simple. Is it about you or is it about others? It's about you. It's probably not all that righteous. Because then you're just offended or it's, you're not getting your way or something like that. When it's anger about how other people are being treated or injustice that has been done, that's a righteous anger. And there's a godly way to express righteous anger. And it's not throwing tantrums. And it's not shouting. And it's not violent. And it's not pointing fingers. A righteous anger can be expressed gently and clearly and truthfully. The way you treated that person 
was unacceptable. That's righteous way to express anger. So okay, so some of you have been sitting with anger on the inside. You just need to learn to let it out in a righteous way. If you want fancy language, you're talking here about righteous indignation. How's that for nicely? Righteous indignation. You become indignant about things that are wrong. But do not use that as an excuse to sin. When you get angry, you still have to love your neighbor. You still have to speak to them respectfully because they're made in the image of God. Even if you think they're inspired by the devil. Okay. You never, you never have an excuse as a believer when you're angry about something to say whatever you want. It's never. In your anger, do not sin. In fact, one of the guys I read about this says that do not let the sun go down on the cause of your anger. It's not, it's not a widespread understanding of that verse, but I thought it was helpful. And by the way, whose anger are you responsible for? Your anger. So if you are in conflict with your spouse, sort out your own anger. You'll probably find you have a much more productive conversation then. Okay. So you're not responsible for other people's anger. You're responsible for yours. As always in the New Testament, you're responsible for your own behavior. So be angry, but do not sin. Righteously angry. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Pray it through. Sort it out. Speak to somebody in love, truthfully, if you need to. Why? Verse 27. Do not give the devil a foothold. So when I'm putting off my old self, I am able to speak truthfully in love. I can handle my anger appropriately, and therefore I don't give the devil a a foothold. Okay. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal. Now, this baffles me. He's writing to Christians. Anyone who has been stealing should no longer steal. It's not like he's... Okay. Interesting church, this in Ephesus. Nee. Although, okay. Maybe they were like just saved and their career was petty theft. And so Paul writes us to say, well, because your life as a believer should look different from your, when you were an unbeliever. If, you, if your income generation as an unbeliever was illegitimate, like stealing, now I'm extending it a little bit, okay? Then it should change. So you must no longer steal. That's, I would have thought that's obvious, but Paul writes it to Christians, so I will say it to you. You must no longer steal. But you must work, do something useful with your own hands, so that you may have something to share with those in need. That's quite interesting. That's quite a radical change from disenfranchising others, stealing from them, to actually supplying to those in need. The old self and the new self are radically different. Is that okay? So, how you speak, how you handle anger, and perhaps how you generate income look radically different when you are a believer. Verse 29, let's keep going. I believe God has a specific application for us a bit later. Now, it's interesting. Paul talks about the old self and the new self, and he comes back again to our speech, the way we talk. So I think the first time in verse 25 when he says, put off, put off falsehood and speak truthfully, he's talking about how we relate in the community. Okay? And he comes back to it now again in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, just in case you're wondering, that is a command in the Greek. That's like... Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So I know there's some people studying lawyer, and you're going to go, well, what is unwholesome talk? Text is very clear. Fortunately, Paul defines it for us here. He says, how do you know when talk is wholesome or unwholesome? 
Wholesome talk is only that which is helpful for building up others according to whose need? Their need. Interesting. And that it may benefit those who listen. So if you want to judge, is your talk unwholesome or wholesome? There's three tests. Number one, is it for the benefit of the person? For what they need. Not for what you think they need to know about their lives. Can I remember there's the tension here between speaking the truth and stuff. Okay? But generally, is it for their benefit? So when you're talking to others or about others, is it for their benefit? Is it something that they need at that time where they are on their journey for Christ? And then quite an interesting standard, so that those who listen, others around it, sorry, I just want to say it right, that it may benefit those who listen. Three very clear, concrete measures for if my talk is okay. So by the way, this means you can't gossip. Sorry. Guys, I know you're not interested in this. It's more like for other people. Okay. You can't gossip. Why? Because it's not generally for the person's benefit. It's not what they need to hear. (laughs) And even though you think it might be interesting for everybody around you, it does not benefit them. Okay. When you put on your new self, your talk needs to become more and more wholesome. No unwholesome talk from our mouths. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. I want to come back to that verse. Because the next verse, I believe, speaks into that and also this idea of unwholesome talk. Verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, that's being argumentative and fighting, slander, that's saying bad things about other people, making them appear less than they are, along with every form of malice. That's quite a list. So wholesome talk is never bitter, It's never angry. Rage, that's quite strong. Brawling, it's not argumentative. It doesn't cause fights. It doesn't slander. It doesn't put others down. And there's no malice. It's quite, it's a tough list. It's almost like we should almost like not talk. Now, I'm an introvert, so it's very easy for me not to talk. So sorry for, um, like, Raquel. She's like an extrovert. So is my wife, so it's it's fine. Um, But it's... Isn't this a high standard for how we talk as believers? This new self that God's asking me to put on. Can't be bitter. Can't be angry. Mustn't have any malice. Malice means I want to do the person in this bad intent. I want to make them suffer. Is that okay? Just, I'm going to make this guy suffer. Let me go and tell people what they've... You can't speak like that. The new self that God has created you to be, that's not allowed. Verse 32 The positive says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God forgave you. So interesting that the forgiving thing comes in here. Because when we have unforgiveness in our hearts towards others, it always leads to bitterness and resentment and envy and things like that, by the way. But if I want to make this easy for myself, I want to remember three things. Number one, I need to be forgiving towards others. And then two and three, I must be kind and compassionate. And so... God addresses in this passage through Paul how we talk to one another, what we do with our anger, and that we should not steal. But this idea of talking comes up repeatedly because I think Proverbs says that what comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart. And so this is still a heart issue. This is not an external list of behaviors. If in my heart I can determine to be kind and compassionate and forgiving, do you think that's going to affect my talk? Do you think my talk about others is going to become more wholesome? Do you think my anger is going to be more righteous when I'm kind, compassionate, and forgiving? I would suggest so. And I don't think any thief is compassionate. Just my perspective. 
on that. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. And this, Paul reminds us of something he said in chapter 1, that God gave us his Holy Spirit as this mark of ownership, that we belong to him. So he comes and lives in us by his Spirit. That seal is the deposit. It's the mark of future things to come, that God will save you more fully in the future while he's busy saving you now. But Paul writes here and he says, when you don't speak the truth in love, when in your anger you do sin, when you steal, when you defraud others and you take things from them that don't belong to you, when you speak about others in a pejorative way, in a way that is negative, that is unwholesome, you end up grieving the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the sign that, God, that you belong to God, that your life belongs to Him. And when you live in this way, when you do things like this of your old self, ultimately what that means, and sorry, this feels a little heavy, you dishonor God. It's, it's not me, it's Paul. There, okay, it's in the Bible. And so if we want to live lives that are pleasing to God, we want to live lives that honor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is welcome when I speak the truth in love. The Holy Spirit is welcome when in my anger, my righteous indignation, I do not sin. When I become angry about the right things, the Holy Spirit is honored when I do not steal and I live generously and provide for others. The Holy Spirit is honored when I speak in a way that is wholesome, in a way that is kind, when I'm kind and compassionate. Then the Holy Spirit is honored. Now, I'm in for that. I'm in for honoring the Holy Spirit. So just in summary, the new self, uh, if you guys can put up that slide, it's created in God to be righteous and holy. That's how God has made you, given you the ability to be. The new self speaks truthfully and wholesomely. Wholesome is a nice word. Eh? It just feels like all healthy. Okay. Truthfully and wholesomely. The new self can control its anger or it has righteous anger as a new self. It doesn't steal. Perhaps another way is to say is it deals honestly with others. It doesn't defraud them. It deals honestly with others. The new self is kind and compassionate and forgiving. The new self honors the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm in for that life. My title for tonight was put on the real self. This is, when you are a believer, this is who you really are. You're not trying to be something you're not. You're trying to be something that you are. If we can take the focus and the energy of our lives and not focus so much on being sinners, but can make the focus perhaps more positive. Are we sinners? Yes. That's a reality of my life that I can never deny. But I think sometimes we focus so much on not sinning that we forget to live lives that are honoring. I found this as I've walked with young people, old people, through many years now. When you focus on pleasing God, it's very hard to sin. When you focus on avoiding sin, somehow your whole life becomes about that. So if I can live my life to say to a place where I want to honor the Holy Spirit, that's not an abstract concept. It's quite clearly defined here at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning parts of chapter 5. It's quite clearly defined. You'll even see as you head into chapter 6, being filled with the Spirit tells you how you relate in marriage, how you relate with your children, how you relate in the workplace with employees employees. God's very practical. But if the focus of my life can be on honoring God and honoring the Holy Spirit who's in me, and that takes my energy, that takes my attention, that takes my focus, what you will find is that sin bothers you less and less. Will you ever be sinless? Probably not this side of heaven. But when your focus is on what God wants, 
I guess what I'm saying is, as a believer, it's more natural to act in a way that is holy and wholesome than in a way that is sinful. So put on who God has made you to be, what he's described for you in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That is how he's calling you to live. I feel two points of emphasis for us tonight. That we can consider in ourselves to speak truthfully and wholesomely. And secondly, that we can be forgiving people. And as I was preparing and waiting on God, perhaps this is the point of ministry for us tonight. Perhaps you've realized that your talk hasn't been all that wholesome. That you've avoided saying things you should say, and that you've not avoided saying things that you should not say. Both sides of the coin. But perhaps you realize that you've also been holding unforgiveness in your heart towards others. Now what you'll probably find is when there's unforgiveness in your heart, it comes out in the way you speak. If anger is your issue, then I'll make time and we'll pray and, and you can deal with that as part of your prayer tonight. But what I feel to just facilitate from the front is just coming to this place of being forgiving others. Not just because they've hurt me and damaged me, but also so that I can not speak about them in a way that breaks down and cuts them and doesn't reflect Jesus all that well and grieves the Holy Spirit. Is that okay? Once when I was a student leader, we had houses and I oversaw one house. One of the guys had read a book by, I don't want to mention names, but a guy who was really into like the Holy Spirit and the spiritual stuff. And we all just woken up in the morning and uh, it was a guy's house, so you know it's not super friendly in the mornings because everyone's still waking up. And this guy obviously got up early and had a quiet time and came in like supercharged. And he came into the breakfast room and he said, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And so I said to him, well, what does that mean practically? He said, I don't know, but we're grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, it might have been true, but as a leader, I didn't know what to do with that. And what I find helpful in passages like Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, other passages in Colossians and the New Testament, it paints this picture for me of what does it look like when I please God, when I honor the Holy Spirit, and what does it look like when I grieve the Holy Spirit. And so tonight I believe God wants us to be forgiving because Christ, the text says, as Christ forgave you. Jesus forgave you much. So let's forgive others and we trust that that brings us to a place in our lives where we can be more honoring of God, more honoring of this presence of the Holy Spirit in us, that we can then be kind and compassionate and forgiving, that we can speak truthfully and wholesomely. Is that okay? So I'm not going to ask anybody to stand, but I'm going to make a time for you to sit before the Lord, to be baby quiet before the Lord. I'm going to pray a prayer. Is that okay? Jesus, we sang tonight and... and Many of us, all of us, perhaps, saying that we will praise you with our lives. And we've just read some really, really practical things of what does it look like to live a life that praises God beyond just our songs, a life that has actions filled, that praise you. But Lord, we've also read in your word that if we're unforgiving, it affects many other aspects of our lives, how we talk, the things we become angry about. And Lord, I believe you spoke to me as I was preparing to make an opportunity for people to forgive. 
And so you know each of us where we, I'm standing, the rest or sitting. We, each of us is seated in this place or standing tonight. Search our hearts, Lord. Lord, I know you know my heart better than I do. I know you know the hearts of each one sitting here better than perhaps they do. And so as it is your will, as it pleases you, would you show us if there's anything in us that is dishonoring of the presence of your Spirit in our lives? If we're holding unforgiveness, and that's affecting how we relate, and we're grieving perhaps your presence and your ownership in our lives. Lord, I ask for forgiveness for us where we've held unforgiveness in our hearts. Forgive me if you can personalize this prayer for yourself. Forgive me, Lord, where I've held or am holding unforgiveness in my heart. Forgive me where that's turned into bitterness and resentment and and envy and perhaps even malice and slander. Forgive me, Father. And just as you forgave me, I make my choice now, Lord, to forgive those that have wronged me, those that have damaged me in unimaginable ways, those that have slighted me and overlooked me and reduced my dignity. Lord, I forgive as much as I can from the bottom of my heart. And then, Lord, as a community here, we pray like David, that you would create in us a clean heart, that you would renew in us a right spirit. Lord, I pray as we have forgiven tonight, that out of our mouths would stream life-giving water, that we would speak truthfully, without malice, without hidden agendas, without ill intent, that we would speak wholesomely, that we would build others up, and even those that are listening, that they would be encouraged by the way we speak about others. So Lord, you know each of our hearts and I pray that by your spirit in this room and your spirit that lives in us, you bring us to a place of freedom and we release, Lord, tonight (laughs) these burdens that we've been carrying so we can live this life of freedom, this life of joy that you've called us to, this life that is light, this life that is easy. Lord, where our hearts have got tangled up, I pray that you untangle tonight in this place. Because often what happens, I'm not praying anymore, I'm talking. Often what happens in our hearts when we have unforgiveness is they get twisted into knots and we complicate things. So Father, my prayer is that you untangle our hearts and help us to live lives of freedom and joy in your presence. Help us, Lord, to be kind and compassionate and forgiving. Because, Lord, we're so mindful that you've blessed us with everything we've need, we need. You've provided in Jesus salvation for us, a way for us to come free from our sins, a way for us to put off our old lives, which are just corrupted, and a way for us to embrace our new selves, this new life which you've put in us and that you're working out through us. So, Lord, I bless each one here tonight. I bless their coming in and their going out. And I pray, Lord, for a radical freedom in their relationships from tonight onwards. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you for your attention. Uh, If you do want further prayer, there'll be a team here in front to pray with you.
Uh, if you want to know Jesus, definitely want to pray with you. And so uh, Etienne sang a prophetic song earlier tonight. I scribbled it in my notes. He sang this. He said, we're trusting you to make everything new. I've modified it a bit. Okay? We're trusting you to make everything new. And that's what we're doing as we journey with Jesus. We're trusting him to make everything new in our lives. And that's what's sung over us, and that's what we're going to go into the week, that Jesus makes everything new.